Welcome to Lethal Dose, your favorite toxicology-focused podcast where we delve into true crime cases involving drugs and poisons. My name is Venus Dineko. I'm a layperson fascinated by true crime. My name is Kayla Woods. I'm an author and toxicologist. Let's get started. season finale we're gonna wrap up the story of the serpent aka charles sobrage aka a bunch of other names that he's going to be referred to as in this episode bikini killer also right the bikini killer yes and we will see why in this episode also called the serpent because he's a slippery little snake would you be so kind as to give us the rundown quickly of what we covered in part one yeah, so in part one, we talked about Charles's really broken, hard childhood between Vietnam and France around the time of the First Indochina War and the Vietnam War. He got himself into a lot of trouble quite young. He had because uh, he did the back and forth between his parents. Yes, yes, yes. He yep. very split. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he did get married and have a child, and then she was jailed in Afghanistan, and basically after that was like, I gotta leave this guy, good on her. And then, you know, he had some more adventures with his brother, and he got his brother locked up in Greece. He Oh, that's right. And there was the whole, I'm Charles. <laughs> and yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yep. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yep. He, he killed a guy with Thorazine. By giving him Thorazine and then locking him in a trunk. So that is his first known victim. Last time that we saw him, he had just met a Quebecois woman named Marie-Andre Leclerc. And they were on an exotic Indian vacation together, seemingly put on one another's path by fate itself. As Marie-Andre was traveling with her ex-fiancé, and feeling a lack of love and warmth that she thought she would have forever with this man, but it was not to be. After her vacation where she met Charles, she returned to Quebec, and she'd had the great distance between herself and wherever in the world Charles was, because he's still running around and was in India and was in Hong Kong. And she, you know, grew fonder of this tall, dark, handsome stranger she met on an exotic voyage that she agreed to like wait for a bit and then move back to asia to see him and he did call her he called her up after a couple months and was like hey do you want to come live with me in bangkok like we were talking about and she was like sure yeah Yeah. (laughs) wow all right well Mm -hmm. he must have had the swagger i suppose or as the kids say the riz is that what they're saying that's what they're saying and i learned what it stood for the other it's for charisma Oh, okay. That it made way more sense after I learned because I asked somebody, I was like, what is Riz? And they're like, it's like game. Yeah. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. But yeah. That so makes, yeah. so he had the Riz. I believe that he had to have to get, have gotten away with as much shit as he did. Yeah. So she's been imagining him all this time. He's been doing his thing and stealing jewels and drugging people and is going by a different name again now he's alone and when she stepped off the plane on august 2nd 1975 
The man who greeted her at the airport in Thailand was not the same charming man who'd been living in her imagination this whole time. He was distant. He was kind of emotionless as he led her to their awaiting limousine. And even as they sat next to each other in the car, he barely touched her. And then he put four small boxes in her lap and told her that they were his gifts to her. And in them, she found a jade pendant, a matching jade ring, a diamond ring, and a sapphire ring also mounted with diamonds. So, all right. Legitimate, like, gem dealings. Jewels, yeah. He, yeah. And Marie Andre tried to refuse because, I mean, she's already, like, taken a big step and has moved from Canada to Thailand to be with this guy she really knows. And she was like, you know, maybe we should see how this relationship works out before you start giving me such expensive gifts. Mm. But Charles, like, kind of aggressively was like, no, you will take these, and this is how things are going to be. So there's just this, like, dominance being established day one. So she accepted the gifts, and she knew that although, like, she'd seen the gem dealings and, like, I don't know if she'd yet seen that he helped people actually get their gems appraised, but he was doing, like, legitimate gem dealings oh okay so like on in addition to his legal dealings right and she knew she knew he dealt in some illegal dealings to make a living for himself and like also knew she didn't know stuff about him like how do you know what you don't know but she knows that there is something that she doesn't know but for both of their safety he told her it would be better if she told everyone that she was his secretary and that her name was Monique <laughs> and that she should only refer to him as Alan Gauthier. And I like how he's like, your name is Monique. Like, he had this picked out. Like, Yeah. Like- yeah. And it's again with the dominance thing. Like, this mm-hmm. is the life you're going to live because I tell you to. Right. And like... She just kind of has to accept it because she's already, like, given him an inch, essentially, by being mm-hmm. like, I can accept that you're going to do some illegal stuff and you're going to do some, like, kind of weird, sketchy stuff. Well, and she's in another country with no support system whatsoever, so how is she going to say otherwise, right? Like, right. Did you hear Haley? I did. Hi, Haley. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Haley. Haley would like to be... In the episode and not just in commercials for us. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, yeah, totally. And the other thing that she came to find out was that Charles had other girlfriends. He had at least one that he actually introduced to Marie Andre while they were in Thailand together. And he called this woman, whose name was Anne, his girlfriend, and then told Anne in front of Marie that Marie was his secretary. Uh (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) yeah (laughs) and Anne also was helping him with the gem dealings like that legitimate portion of what he did and like i'm sure part like part of it was illegal and part of it was sketchy too and she helped him with that and like knew about that but i think that she actually owned one of the gem shops that he like worked with and that's how they met each other Mm. but yeah so They get introduced, and Marie-Andre gets to be the secretary rather than the girlfriend, and this definitely weighs on her. She's like, I I don't even know why I'm here. I don't really know what our relationship is, because you're telling me that this is your girlfriend. He didn't seem to have, like, much interest in sex with Marie-Andre either. Like, they'd had this, like, passionate love affair in India the last time that she'd seen him, and then she moves to Thailand, and after a week, it just is a total dry spell. Fizzles, yeah. 
And so he, like, explains that he's been out all day. He's working. He won't tell her what he means by working for her own safety. She's not allowed to know, according to him. And then he comes home after working all day, has no energy for her, and then asks her for money. On top, yeah, yeah, that's rough. And so then she cashes all of her traveler's checks until she has no more money, and then her traveler's visa expires. And so now she's an illegal alien in Thailand with no money and no way to return home to Canada. Mm, that's rough. And this is after, like, a month. Like, it's very quick. And so at the end of the month, Charles surprises Marie-Andre with a white spitz puppy named Frankie and suggests that the three of them take a little trip to the south. You know, forget about your worries. I'll take care of your traveler's visa. It's fine. You don't need to worry about anything. You don't need to worry about money. You're with me now. Let's take a trip. And so Marie-Andre's first real taste of Thailand was a visit to the Pattaya Beach Resort on the Gulf Coast. And this is where they met Australian travelers Russell Lapthorne and his wife Vera on September 1st. Charles and Marie-Andre introduced themselves as Parisian psychiatrist Jean Belmont and his French-Canadian wife, Monique. The two couples didn't talk much at first, but when Jean expressed his disgust at the dirty water and mentioned how much cleaner the beach was at Hua Hin on the other side of the Gulf, the Lapthorns mentioned that they were actually considering going that direction next. And then over drinks, they realized, coincidentally, mm -hmm. that they were intending to make the same trip to Singapore. So Jean suggested that they take the train to Singapore together and then stop at the various beaches along the way together. Like, you know, we're all, like, English-speaking at least. Like, why not? Why not have a little group travel? Sure. So Jean, Charles acted as their host when they reached the first resort and ordered everyone a round of chocolate milkshakes, which to me seems, like, very weird. Like, a round of milkshakes, please. <laughs> For me and my adult friends. We're all yeah. adults. <laughs> yeah. And I just, like, maybe it's the dairy, but it's just, like, I don't know that I'd want to drink milk in this, like, hot... Hot, be <laughs> hot humid beach. Like... Yeah. Yeah. A little weird. But a little okay. weird. But so they all get milkshakes, but the shakes take a little long to show up, like, for whatever reason. They take a little while to show up. And so everyone ends up going to their own rooms for an afternoon nap before the milkshakes show up. And so when they do, Monique brought the Lapthorns their glasses and then stayed until they finished them to return them to room service for them. And the Lapthorns noticed that she was quiet and reserved and earlier in the day, they'd noted that Monique was visibly upset after she and Jean took a walk. So, you know, they probably, like, had some sort of argument. And the lovebird Lapthorns thought, you know, trouble in paradise or something. Like, nothing big. She's just upset because they had an argument out on their walk. It's not our problem. Mm -hmm. But that evening, the Lapthorns were the ones who were finding themselves with trouble in paradise. <laughs> Because all that night, they were both sick with nausea and diarrhea, and they attributed this to something being wrong with the shellfish that they'd eaten at dinner or on the train from Bangkok. Like, a pretty reasonable thing to assume. And then Jean offered to buy them some milk at the store so that they could settle their stomachs. And then the Lapthorns accepted it. They're like, sure, we can't really, like, we don't really want anything, but I guess milk is fine. So... They sat on the beach together, they talked, the Australians tried to recover from their sickness, 
Russell Lapthorne told them about his work as a PhD candidate and a university professor back home. And this is actually why he was in Southeast Asia, because he was there on a travel grant, and he was trying to write a book on the politics of the region. Mm, okay. And some of his grant money was still on his person in the form of traveler's checks to help get the Lapthorns from place to place on their journey. And for whatever reason, he shared that he, bit of information. I was just going to say, like, he divulged that to these seemingly strangers. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so around three in the afternoon, Jean returned from town with the milk and sent Monique over to deliver it to the Lapthorns, who were waiting out the afternoon rain in their room. Vera took hers right away, but Russell was engrossed in a book called Oil Politics, and so he set aside his drink for later. Vera started to feel dizzy again, so she laid down, and when she woke up, she fell out of bed and had a hard time standing back up. She tried to wake up Russell, who had also fallen asleep at this point, but she quickly succumbed again to dizziness and passed out. And they were found unconscious in their room by maids 36 hours after drinking the milk that had been brought to them by Monique, and were rushed to the hospital to have their stomachs pumped. When Vera was able to get back to the hotel to gather their belongings, she found that their passports, marriage certificate, and driver's licenses were missing, along with $900 in Vera's diamond ring and a gold necklace chain. Jean and Monique Belmont and their dog Frankie were also gone, having checked out shortly before the Lapthorns were taken to the hospital. When Russell recovered enough, he attempted fruitlessly to make a police report, and the language barrier made it nearly impossible to do so. So the couple was left to find their way back to Bangkok and try to get help at the embassy there. And just a few days later, Russell again collapsed with stomach pains and high fever and was hospitalized for another two weeks. By this time, Charles and Marie-Andre were already back in Bangkok, where Charles had revealed his next surprise to her, which was a fully furnished penthouse apartment at Canet House Number 504. It wasn't luxurious, but it was enough for both of them, and Charles now had a more official-looking place of business, and he'd actually already had business cards made up which read, A. Gauthier Gem Dealer, with the apartment's address on them, so... Maybe he had this plan before their trip to Pattaya, or maybe the $900 that they stole off of the laptop. Helped him, helped. yeah, support this yeah. endeavor, yeah. Yeah. The couple found their next victim two weeks later in Hong Kong, based on information given to Charles by his investors, as he called them. And now I have to say here that this is based on what Charles said, because later on, as I said in the last episode, Charles was giving interviews to a lot of people, including the authors of one of the books I read, and that was Richard Neville and Ju Julie Clark. He talked to them, like, right away because they were both, like, counterculture journalists who had spent time mm. in Southeast Asia. And so this is where I got a lot of my information from. And so he was just telling them kind of everything. And we also were able to get Marie Andre's statement. But that's where we're getting this information from, is the people who were behind it. We're not really getting a whole lot, a lot of information from their victims, necessarily. And also, he's going to say that he has these investors in Hong Kong, and this is where he got some of his information on the people that he victimized. But I do not for a second believe that this is true. I think this is mm. him retconning his story to like gotcha. yeah, okay. make himself look a little bit more justified in his actions. Okay. So he says that he'd been told that a Frenchman named André Brugnot 
was in Thailand posing as an antiques dealer, but was actually there on business for a European heroin ring to pay off local suppliers. Charles was able to strike up a conversation in French with the man and created temporary camaraderie in a foreign land, and then coincidentally, again, so many coincidences <laughs> with this guy, Right. <laughs> the pair realized that they were both headed for Chiang Mai, and Charles offered to drive. Bruno was let off easy, only being poisoned mildly with laxatives. But on Charles's and Murray's return trip, they brought a young French bank clerk with them named Dominique Ronaldo. Dominique had dinner with the gem dealer and his wife and found them fascinating, but became violently ill afterwards with diarrhea and vomiting. And the couple took pity on him and brought him back to Bangkok with them to recover in the presence of friends whom he just met rather than on the concrete floor of a guest house, which, like, sure, if I'm going to be sick in a foreign country, I don't want to do it alone and in, like, an uncomfortable place, but you just met these people. Right. Like, <laughs> you'd have no idea where they're taking you. Right. So he's essentially, like, unconscious, is in Chiang Mai, and then wakes up in Bangkok at Kennet House after the drive there. They give him a glass of white medicine for his dysentery, as they refer to it, and then Charles immediately left again on the next flight back to Chiang Mai because he'd essentially taken Dominique as his alibi. Like, oh, I couldn't have possibly gone back to Chiang Mai. I was taking care of this sick Frenchman. Mm, uh... So he flies back. And according to Charles through Richard Neville and Julie Clark, this is what happened next. Bruno was surprised when I suddenly appeared at the door and told him that we had business to discuss. I asked him... What did you come to Chiang Mai for? As a tourist or on business? Later, I gave him a slap on the side of the head and he fell to the floor. What is your trip? Tourist or business? I kept asking. He didn't answer, so I kicked him and lifted him up by the shirt. Later, I made him take the Mogadon and waited for it to take effect. I didn't want to leave any marks. I showed him a gun. Either you speak up, Andre, or I work on you. So that Mogadon is the nitrazepam that we talked about last time. Mm. So Bruno gave Sobrage the name of his heroin contacts, according to Sobrage, in exchange for his life, and Charles made him take some more of these nitrazepam pills, which he said would put the man to sleep so that he could make a getaway. Charles then dragged the unconscious man to the bathroom and drowned him in the tub. Okay, so, unnecessary. I know. So this like... one isn't, it's not a poisoning case, but it's just like, man, why do you have to do that to this guy? And, like, that's the thing is that he's later going to be like, oh, I had these heroin contacts in Hong Kong, and so they hired me to take care of this Bruno guy, and that's why I had to drown him, and that's why I knew who he was. But I kind of just feel like, and we'll see this more as the story progresses, but I kind of just feel like Charles really doesn't like people who do drugs. And, like, mm. has something against them because of, like, how he grew up and, like, why would you come here and make these stupid decisions with, like, drug smuggling or, like, doing drugs when, like, you know, you're in an unstable place. So I feel like he's just targeting this guy for personal reasons and not business reasons. But whatever. And then it's we just, like, I mean, you poisoned it, like, you could have just left them. You could have left him. Yeah. You could have left him. Yeah. But no. Okay. No. So his body was found by the maid the next day, and since there were no signs of foul play, the death was declared an accident. Back in Bangkok, Dominique was recovering marginally. 
despite the medicine that they were giving him regularly, he was still violently ill nearly every day. And when he wasn't sick, he was sleeping. So he's not like having the great time that he expected to have in Asia. On a day when he was feeling like he was getting better, he and Charles went out of town and Charles explained his gem business to Dominique. More than that, he said that he could buy direct with no middleman, and if Dominique was interested, then he could get some gems for him at cost, and then Dominique could take the gems back to France and sell them at, you know, regular market price. Yeah. Yeah. So you can you can upsell them in France and, and you make can a make profit. a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Make some cash on it. And so He's trying to convince him to do this, and he also casually let him know that he'd taken the liberty of locking up his traveler's checks and passport in the safe at the Cannot house, since Dominique was always sick or sleeping, and there were always visitors at the house, and he didn't want anyone to take Dominique's things. So how kind of him. <laughs> Just so you know, not a big deal. Not a big deal at all. Yeah. Okay. Some of the visitors, because he was right, there were a lot of people. Some of them came and went briefly. Some of them were just there for gem dealings, and then they were out. But others had longer residences, like Dominique. One of them was a woman whom Marie Andre came to realize was another girlfriend of Charles, and she made her leave. But then another Indian man named A.J. Chowdhury, he came into the apartment and became a near-permanent installation. And AJ is an interesting character because the introduction of AJ into the story is when things start to escalate pretty severely with Charles. And so there is a theory that maybe because Charles now has an accomplice in AJ, that's why things get escalated. Because Marie-Andre is not really an accomplice. Dominique's not an accomplice. Right. But AJ is going to be with him for almost everything that happens next. But mm. we also don't know where this guy came from. And if you ask Charles, he's going to either say that he met him in a park, just randomly picked up this kid in a park and was like, do you need a place to stay? Or he was sent to him by his Hong Kong investors. So okay, we don't know, but he's going to be important. And Dominique first met AJ after visiting the gem mines with Charles sometime in early to mid-October. And it's unclear if Dominique did buy any gems from Charles because, you know, he didn't really have any money. He didn't have his traveler's checks. Like, they technically are in his name, but, like, who knows if Charles has cashed those already. Who You know, he doesn't have access to them. But after he suggested that a week and a half with the couple was asking more than enough from them, like, you know, thank you so much for taking care of me, but I really should try to get back to France. Like, regardless of how <laughs> I'm feeling, like, my vacation's coming to an I end. I gotta go. Yeah. <laughs> it's time. Like... <laughs> Immediately after that, he came down with another bout of illness. Mm. And when AJ arrived to the apartment, Charles immediately informed Dominique that AJ would be moving into the spare room that Dominique was sleeping in, and so Dominique would have to start sleeping on the couch. And, like, he couldn't really refuse. He's sick again, and he can't be like, I want the guest bedroom, because he's like, I don't really want to be here. Like, I don't want to be sleeping on your couch, but, like, where am I going to go? Right. And so he was like, okay, sure, I guess. And the medicine that they'd been giving him, that white slurry that they were giving him every day, was labeled kaopectate. 
And this is fascinating medicine. So even though it's not a poison, like, I'm sure everybody has caught on to the fact that he gets sick after taking this medicine. And so it is a poison. And it's not kaopectate. But kaopectate's fascinating. So I'm going to make you all listen to me talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've heard of, I've heard, why have I heard of that? Because it was fairly often used until the 90s as an anti-diarrheal. Okay. Yeah. And so it, it was a powder. And I read about it and disease in this really fascinating paper called The History of Acute Infectious Diarrhea Management, which doesn't sound like it would be interesting, but it was so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, diarrhea was basically like a rampant symptom of disease for forever. But during the U.S. Civil War, there was a rule that you couldn't shoot another guy while he was shitting, because that's just not fair. <laughs> <laughs> there were also a lot of medical discharges because of severe diarrhea. Like, it was a thing. And so to determine if you were able to stay and fight, you had to have the guts to be able to stay. And that's where that mm. phrase comes from. But as far as what I learned about kaopectate, this was a drug that was first developed in 1936, and it contained kaolin and pectate, kaopectate. And kaolin was an aluminum silicate powder from clay that's hydroscopic, so it makes stool less watery. And pectin is from apples, like vegetable gelatin, you know, like right, I can have yeah. pectin jelly. But the really interesting part is that in World War One, German prisoners of war found that raw apples helped improve symptoms of diarrhea and dysentery and led to the phrase, an apple of day keeps the doctor away. And... and that's where that comes from. Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. <laughs> that is interesting. And kaopectate is still around, but it doesn't have kaolin or pectin anymore because in the 19... 19th... <laughs> so it literally doesn't have its namesake anymore? Like not, <laughs> not one of its two namesakes? No, it doesn't because I don't I don't know why they're not using the kaolin anymore, but the pectin they determined has absolutely like no impact. No. <laughs> so well then so do apples like really help with the diarrhea like diarrhea then like i mean the pectin is fiber and fiber helps you know with like with solidify yeah. yeah okay so it probably helps marginally but in terms of like being medicinal medicinal like, yeah 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 so, okay yeah but so in 1975 this is the preparation that dominique believed he was being given to cure what he was starting to think was malaria because he was like, the kaopectate is not helping and I'm actually getting sick every time I, I drink it. <laughs> but is it because, like, I just will get sick every time I have anything in my system because I have malaria? Mm. Like, I'm very concerned for myself at this point. I mean, he's just he's melting off weight because he's just he can't not keep keeping anything, anything on. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dominique stays. He's now sleeping on the couch and Alon, Charles, is asking him, hey, if you're going to be here and if you're going to be on the couch, can you help me with my gem dealings? I mean, you don't have to buy the gems. I would like you to, but you don't have to. But when people are here, can you hype me up? Can you say that you've bought gems from me before? And AJ was essentially like Dominique thought there to do the same thing, where he he wasn't prompted to buy jewels, but he was always there to like help Alon make a sale. And so Dominique was like, yeah, I can help. I mean, it's not ethical, but it's also not hurting anyone. Like, it's lying, right. but like, sure, whatever. Yeah, you're, you're giving me a place to stay, so why not? But AJ 
and Dominique didn't know this, because Dominique doesn't know about the other stuff that's going on, AJ was helping Charles in his other business endeavors, which echoed his crimes along the hippie trail in the past episode. And I mean, this makes sense, because it's not wealthy merchants necessarily coming in to buy gems in this shitty Bangkok apartment. It's hippie kids traveling through, like, an unknown land that are like, gems cool i i can buy them at a like cheaper price and take them back home i could use a little bit of cash sir why not or like there might be a little bit of like can you smuggle this for me going on like neville Mm. and clark both kind of insinuated that that's kind of normal as like a way to make money or just like a way to like have an adventure sort of thing but The hippie kids aren't, they're going to be the people who are in his apartment. And so one of these hippie kids that found themselves in the apartment was an American woman named Teresa Knowlton. Teresa was 22 years old and was on her second trip to Asia in October of 1975. She flew into Hong Kong from Seattle, stayed a week, and then flew to Bangkok. And her ultimate destination was a monastery in Kathmandu where she was planning to stay with the Tibetan monks as a nun. Like many of the other travelers, Teresa was trying to find herself after a childhood marred by divorce, followed by an adolescence full of drugs and foster care, and part of that journey, despite how contrary it seemed because of her destination, involved more drugs and sex as a final hurrah before giving herself over completely to Buddhism. And I get it. She's 22. She wants to kind of like live it up. Live it up before. Right. Sure. And Charles would later say that Teresa's business in Thailand was less wholesome than she'd led her friends and family to believe, and that he'd actually targeted her because hers was one of the names that Andre Bugnot had given him on the list of drug smugglers. But in reality, Teresa was just unfortunate enough to have wandered into Canet House with the other travelers staying at the nearby Malaysia Hotel before ever making it to Nepal. On October 13th, the conversation moved from Buddhism to Charles's work with gems and then prompted an invitation for the outspoken American woman to accompany him to the Pattaya Resort for the weekend. AJ and Charles picked Teresa up from the Hotel Malaysia that night at 6.30, saying that Monique would be staying behind to take care of Dominique. They bar-hopped along the Gulf of Thailand until Charles decided it was time, and he spiked Teresa's drink with a sedative. Around midnight, they left the bar and drove further south to a secluded beach, where Charles would later claim he got Teresa to admit to smuggling heroin. I don't believe this. I was just going to say, this is all according to Charles. Right. And while we don't know what was in her drink at the bar, Charles admitted to having forced Teresa to drink coffee with another five ground tablets of nitrazepam in it, which was approximately a 50 milligram dose. AJ and Charles then stripped Teresa, removing even her jewelry, and dressed her in a bikini. She was conscious, but out of it, and did not struggle. And this is exactly how her body was found five days later by a fisherman, clad only in the bikini and with nothing else to help identify her body. And this is how Charles Sobrage came to be known as the Bikini Killer. On November 4th, the Bangkok Post printed a picture of Teresa's body and asked for help in identifying the poor tourist's body. They received no information on who she could be, and there did not appear to be any signs of foul play or anything to suggest that she hadn't simply drowned. Furthermore, records at the Malaysia Hotel showed that Teresa Knowlton had checked out on October 14th. 
The unclaimed body was wrapped in a plastic bag and buried in the Sawong Borobone Cemetery. Soon after Teresa disappeared, a new couple moved into Canet House, a chef named Remy Gier and his wife Nadine, who were both from Paris but had moved to Bangkok almost on a whim after finding it would take months to get American visas. They enjoyed the French community they found in Bangkok and thought that Alain and Monique were interesting, but they weren't quite as taken with them as some of the others were. And perhaps it because they were neighbors rather than temporary guests, but they were able to see through some of Charles's guises. For instance, Remy noticed that Charles at one time claimed to have studied psychology at the Sorbonne, law somewhere else, and then engineering somewhere else, and was now a gem dealer. Yeah. <laughs> That's quite the turn of events. Yeah. Like. <laughs> what Remy thought he really was was a hustler and perhaps also a thief, which he concluded when some of Alon's visitors came up with strange hangovers and missing passports and traveler's checks more than once. But Nadine made friends with the lonely Monique and became close to her and Alon. Monique told her that she and Alon were not actually married, even though they said they were husband and wife, and that she knew Alon was cheating on her. Meanwhile, Alon, or Charles, took interest in his neighbor because Nadine did not have permanent work. Sometimes she worked at the Laotian embassy to translate English documents into French, and Charles took interest in the embassy work and asked Nadine to help him find clients and the diplomats she occasionally worked with. Charles was collecting a family of sorts, all of whom were part of his business schemes to one extent or another. He was planning to open a jewelry store, like a legitimate jewelry store with Anne, who would have to be one of the owners because foreigners couldn't own businesses in Thailand, and he'd earned the favor of two ex-detectives who'd lost their passports and ended up in his apartment at Cannon House. And these ex-detectives, like, they don't have big roles in this story, but it's just, like, the amount of power that he must have felt over being able to deceive these two people who sure. previously worked on the, you know, police force, and, mm -hmm. like, I don't know, it's just, it's insane. It's really fed his ego. Yeah, yeah. So in this family, this chosen family, he has Dominique, AJ, Monique, Frankie the dog, and a monkey named Coco. Cannot House was always busy, and Charles himself was always busy with some sort of business venture. Because of his travel, it's possible that there were other victims, but the next known murder victim ended up in Charles and Marie Andre's apartments on October 27th. Like Teresa Knowlton, AJ and Charles found a Turkish man named Vitali Hakim at the Hotel Malaysia, and Charles would later claim that Hakim's name had also been on the list of drug smugglers given to him by André Brunel. Unlike Teresa, however, Vitali was actually caught up in the business of drug smuggling and was in Bangkok on business, looking to buy two to three kilos of heroin and smuggle them into Europe in suitcases with false bottoms. As such, Hakim was likely carrying approximately ten to twenty thousand dollars on him for the deal, and oh, wow. may himself had been high or strung out on his own product. Nadine recalled seeing him tired and feverish at the end of October, but said he'd gotten sick after dinner with Alon the night before. Despite his illness, everyone in the apartment that night saw Vitali leave with Alon and AJ around eleven PM to go to the gem mines, which is a weird time to be going to gem mines. Right. <laughs> to help Alon with a large order of gemstones. Vitali was in terrible condition. He could barely walk at this point. 
but Charles Sobrage had much more in store for him. Later, he would claim his actions were on instruction from his Hong Kong connections. But again, I think that this is just Charles taking out his distaste for hippies and junkies and ramping up his serial killer needs. AJ and Charles handcuffed and gagged Vitali, then drove to a fishing village near Siracha and stayed the night. The next evening, they drugged Vitali with an injection of sodium pentothal and drove to a secluded clearing off the highway and questioned him about the heroin smuggling. And they may have chosen this drug specifically for the purpose of interrogation because sodium pentothal is the brand-named version of sodium thiopental, which is a short-acting barbiturate used for anesthesia to induce feelings of calmness and sedation, but also has history as a hypnotic agent and a supposed truth serum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sodium thiopental works by binding to the GABA-A receptor, which causes a postsynaptic inhibitory effect of GABA in the thalamus, and this causes a lack of inhibition in actions and speech and reduces feelings of pain and anxiety. So if you have a lack of inhibition, you're just going to have verbal diarrhea if somebody asks you a question. And because you don't have any anxiety, like, you're not going to feel nervous mm -hmm. about giving up that information. Exactly. Exactly. Gotcha. So according to Charles, Vitali gave them some of the names of other people involved, which, I mean, this just sounds like almost witchcraft hunt stuff, you know? Like, mm -hmm. he gave me names, but it's just all Charles retconning his own story, I think. Because one of the names that Vitali supposedly gave Charles was his own girlfriend back in Paris. And then that wasn't enough, and so they beat him until he gave them more names, which they probably just beat this guy because they're ramping up, you know, their whatever, their serial killer actions. They then cut off his long hair, gagged him again, and drove him towards Pattaya. They stopped off the highway again, and Charles pulled Vitali out of the car and broke his neck, and then he and AJ poured gasoline on the man's body and set him on fire. Holy shit, that escalated quickly. It's really escalating here. The corpse was found the next day at 6 a.m. by a rice farmer. The police declared it a suicide and uh, very... Yeah, I know. Okay, I... Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And the body was buried in the Sawong Borobone Cemetery without further investigation or identification. Wow. Like, we don't know who this is, but they definitely killed themselves. Case closed. Pretty Good much. night. Pretty much. Wow. And I mean, there is something t to be said about, like, how much police forces anywhere are willing to investigate anything. But in particular, the police force in Thailand doesn't do great in this story. Yeah, it seems like they can't be bothered. Back at Cannot House, Alan and Monique's sickened lodgers were beginning to question the effectiveness of the kaopectate they were being given daily for their stomach ailments. A couple of Dominique's still here. Dominique is still here. Yeah, he's still fucking here. Mm -hmm. Just checking, just checking in. Like, yep, yep. Dominique is still there, and there's a couple of Canadians also being given kaopectate for their stomach ailments that they're experiencing. But they stopped drinking it because they noticed that they only seemed to get sicker after Monique gave them their kaopectate. And Dominique had noticed this as well. The Canadians assumed they were being given the wrong medicine. They, they probably don't know that it's just kaolin and pectin, and it really is just, like, fiber and stuff to make your stool, like, a bit firmer. And so they're like, it's, it's, it's just the wrong thing for what's happening with us. Dominique 
I don't know what he thinks that it is, but he chooses to buy his own container of Kaopectate, and he's like, oh, I'm actually starting to feel better taking my own Kaopectate. It must mm. just be something with theirs. They you got, know- theirs is off. Theirs is just <laughs> off. You never think that the people who have taken you in and been so nice to you are poisoning you. Like, sure. it's just not what we think. That's not, yeah, the first thing to come to mind. Like, literally anything else but that. But then, you know, he's whatever maybe he's on the toilet reading it or something but at some point he notices the fine print on the bottle indicates that kaopectate shouldn't be taken longer for longer than two days with a fever and so he's like oh shit is it i've been taking this for fucking like nine months or some shit at this point like i don't know how long he's been there but that's what it (laughs) it's been a couple weeks okay okay (laughs) okay just check no the story is just progressing rapidly yeah it's only been a couple weeks (laughs) okay 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 but he's like, is it making me worse because I have had a fever and I have been taking it so long and I've lost 20 pounds already from the right. constant diarrhea I'm experiencing. And then he's like, Alon has been saying that he knows better than whatever doctors that only speak Thai he could take me to would know. So who, shouldn't he know that the kaopectate shouldn't be taken for this long? Like, he's, he's starting to have some questions is mm-hmm. what I'm getting at. But what they were giving him, and I could not find anything that for sure said what they found. They found many, many, many things in the apartment later. But what they were probably giving him, as far as I could find, was anything that Charles could get his hands on. But likely a mixture of laxatives, ipecac, and sedatives like nitrazepam, clopromazine, diazepam, and quaaludes like mandrax. Just the fucking kitchen sink. Damn it, Yeah. To make you shit yourself, puke, and then fall And pass out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Listeners who have seen The Wolf of Wall Street or paid close attention to the Bill Cosby rape trials may be familiar with quaaludes. These are hypnotic sedative drugs which were sold in the 1960s but discontinued by the 1980s because of widespread abuse. Quaalude is the brand name for methoquilone, which when sold in combination with diphenhydramine was called Mandrax, and this was one of Charles Sobrage's drugs of choice for sedating victims. This may have been because methoquilone was first developed in India and were believed to be safer hypnotics than benzodiazepines like litrazepam or barbiturates like sodium thiopental, both in that they were less toxic and they had less of a hangover feeling, while still causing deep sleep and reducing anxiety. Methoquilone acts quickly and lasts for a short amount of time, and like benzos and barbiturates, also acts on the GABA receptors to cause euphoria and inhibition. It does not seem like anyone died as a direct result of Charles giving them his fake kaopectate solution, but it can't be ruled out. And further, it cannot be said with certainty that he always drugged his victims on the streets with one thing or another, and he very well could have killed someone just by giving them too much mandrax. The manufacturer knew as early as 1973 that coma could occur with a dose of 2.4 grams and death could occur with 8 grams, but less would be needed in either case if the drug was paired with alcohol, which is also a central nervous system depression, mm. and is usually what he dropped these pills into. Right. That, that's an, Yeah, that's a potent combo. Yeah. Whatever the case, Dominique had stayed in Thailand far longer than he'd ever intended. Eight weeks now. And sick or not, he needed to get back to France, but Alain still had his passport. 
And when he thought about the situation was in, he realized that no one else he knew seemed to have their passports on them either. Mm. They'd either lost them or Alon was also keeping them in his safe so that they wouldn't get stolen by all the people coming through Kennet House. Quote, unquote. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And before, this had seemed like a kindness. But now that Dominique had a bit more perspective, it seemed a little bit more suspicious. And it was after giving all of this some second thought that Dominique determined he had to be home by Christmas, and no later. At the beginning of December, a Dutch couple wrote a letter home talking about a French gem dealer they'd met in Hong Kong who had given them a ring for a very good price, bought them dinner, and then insisted that they pay for nothing, but that they would come stay with him when they made their way to Bangkok. The couple was Henrikus Hank Bitania and Cornelia Cocky Hemker, and they'd been traveling since September and even checked into the Malaysia Hotel around the same time that Teresa Knowlton had checked in there. In Hank's journal, he wrote that he'd been concerned that this Frenchman was trying to swindle them, but that they'd taken the ring to different shops in the city and had confirmed they'd bought the ring and the sapphire set into it for about half the normal asking price. Perhaps it was really just a European attempting to show another young European couple hospitality in a foreign place, And so what reason did they have to distrust him, and what reason did they have to turn down his hospitality in Thailand? On December 9th, Charles returned from Hong Kong, and Dominique told him that the day before, a woman had called looking for Vitaly Hakim. This was Stephanie Perry, Vitaly's girlfriend from France. Charles called her back at her hotel, and the two agreed to meet there to discuss what Charles knew about Vitaly's whereabouts. When they met up, Stephanie explained that she hadn't heard from Vitaly, and he wasn't returning her calls at the number he'd given her. Charles told her that Vitaly was on a trip to Pattaya, near the gem mines where he was going, that day, and if she wanted, he could take her there to see Vitaly. Stephanie checked out of the hotel, and then she and Charles went to lunch, where he dosed her with nitrazepam, and then he and AJ drove the woman out to Pattaya that evening and AJ choked her to death. AJ just really got in the thick of it, like, quick. Like, how do you just, like, meet somebody, and then weeks later you're like, we're just fucking killing people together. Well, I mean, that's that's part of why it's like, where did this AJ come yeah, from? Yeah, like, like and, there's and got to be more to it. There's got to be more to it. I think there has to be more to it. And it could be that, like, maybe Charles had met him prior to all of this like well before all of this but there's just no there's no way to know right charles really doesn't talk about aj after everything is said and done and we'll see that aj can't really say anything after everything is said and done either and so there's just no way to know but it is interesting that like this escalated so quickly so quickly once aj came into the picture Mm -hmm. and i just i don't really know why that is Stephanie Perry's body would be found five days later by a truck driver. She was floating face down in a tidal creek, wearing only a red bikini. Unlike Teresa Knowlton, however, police found evidence to suggest that Stephanie had been forcibly drowned and were going to investigate her case as a murder. On December 12th, Charles picked up the Dutch couple from the Dong Luang airport and brought them back to stay with him and Marie-Andre at Cannet House. Nadine met both of them briefly and asked about them the next day, but was told by Marie-Andre that they had taken ill and were sleeping it off in the guest bedroom. Nadine noticed that a lot of people who stayed with her neighbors got (laughs) sick, 
And she actually joked like, oh, there must be like a curse or something on your house. Mm -hmm. But she asked what was wrong with the Dutch couple. And Marie Andre told her that it was the marijuana they'd been smoking. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) And again, this, I think, is part of the excuses that Charles Sobrage gave himself for the way he treated people. Because... He was always able to take advantage of people either because they were on drugs and not aware of their surroundings or they were drinking and he was able to dose their drinks. And I mean, I don't think this is a good excuse, but I think that like he made his distaste for drugs known at Cannet House and, you know, people would like do drugs and drink when he wasn't around, but he wouldn't tolerate it when he was. Mm -hmm. And I really just feel like it's something he picked up in childhood like why would you make yourself so susceptible to this situation like you Mm -hmm. deserve to have something bad happen to you so despite his distaste for others doing drugs a young german named reiner who was working in the gem business temporarily for charles had recently learned that charles was doing speed oh (laughs) so Reiner didn't trust Charles necessarily, and may have been poisoned by him briefly, as most people who encountered him were. (laughs) Right. But he was mostly dealing with a missing passport that he'd gotten resolved and was trying to also get home by Christmas, much like Dominique was. Reiner had met the Dutch couple, and the night after they arrived, he heard some banging around and screaming in the guest bedroom where they were staying. But Marie-Andre told him that they were having a reaction to the drugs that they'd taken, much like she told Dominique, and that Alain was handling it. Don't worry. In Charles's confessions later, he explained that he'd also been told by his Hong Kong connections that the Dutch couple were heroin smugglers. Everyone's a heroin smuggler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <it's>, imagine. <laughs> like, and these, they're just, like, young university students. Like, I think they're they are grad students or something. And it's just, like, even if, even if you listen to Richard Neville and Julie Clark be like, yeah, occasionally these young kids will want some adventure and do some drug smuggling. Like, I do not buy it with this Dutch couple. They're just a young couple wanting to see Thailand. Adventure, yeah. Not fucking heroin smugglers. So he drugged them upon their arrival on December 12th. Immediately he drugs them. And they were horribly ill until December 15th when he told them that he was finally taking them to the hospital. And then he and AJ drove them out to a small town off the highway, beat them, and then lit their bodies on fire while they were still breathing. Jeez. Like, yeah. The escalation is insane. Yeah, this is wild. Their bodies were found by children walking to school the next day, and they were still smoldering when they were found. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. The next day, Dominique got his passport back from Charles, but Charles was honest about having used the passport. And we talked about this in the last episode, that it was a lot easier to manipulate passports Mm -hmm. than because of how the picture was set into it and charles's picture was still in the passport and so the passport would need to be redoctored to have dominique's picture placed back into it oh fuck and like, <laughs> like, sorry about that i was kind of using that my my bad i no, mean and maybe bad. if like he had because he hadn't fixed it he's like oh i guess i have to tell him because it's going to be kind of weird when i give this back to him and my picture's in there yeah yeah <laughs> Okay. And I, I can't keep not giving his passport right, back. Right, like, I'm going to run out of, yeah, reasons to not give this back to him. 
And so, like, he, he puts Dominique's picture back into it, and, like, part of the way that they tried to avoid having people be able to doctor passports is that they would stamp it, and the stamp would be on the passport book and then on the picture. And so mm. they kind of had to, like, orient it or, like, re-stamp it in a certain way, and, like, they didn't stamp it great when they put the Dominique's picture back in. And so Charles was like, it doesn't look great. I'll fix it, though, but I'm not going to fix it until I get back from the Christmas trip that me and Monique are taking. We're going to Hong Kong for Christmas. I'll fix it when I get back. And, of course, Dominique is like, mm, I kind of had other okay. plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I wasn't planning on being here for two mm-hmm. months. Like, I, it's it's time to go. I've overstayed my welcome. And Thank this you. is... Like, it's still, like, mid-December, so he's basically saying, like, you got a couple more couple weeks A couple more here. weeks, yeah. On wow. December 18th, one of the ex-detectives, a man named Yannick, burst into Dominique's room with a copy of the Bangkok Post. Both men were planning to leave soon and had been questioned by Charles about it, who had tried to guilt them for throwing his hospitality in his face by wanting to leave, and also showed concern that they might tell the police what they knew about the drug smuggling and the passport doctoring. Mm. So Yannick told Dominique that he needed to leave immediately if he was going to. And then he showed him the news article with the accompanying picture, which read, Australian couple killed and burned. The partly burned bodies of a young Australian couple have been found in a ditch. Police tentatively identified the couple as Johnson and Rosanna Watson, who had apparently been trained in the central plains a made in holland t-shirt worn by the young woman indicated that they may have arrived here from europe on their way back to australia dominique did not immediately understand the significance because he didn't know any australians Mm -hmm. But, but then yannick told him to look at the picture and the denim skirt worn by the woman for whatever reason it must have been like really interesting because it was familiar to both men So between the skirt that they both recognized and the shirt that was described as being a Made in Holland t-shirt, he realized he wasn't looking a photo of two Australians, but he was looking Mm -hmm. at Hank and Cocky, the Dutch couple. Mm -hmm. And so then he realizes Charles never took this couple to the hospital. Right. This is, like, now they're seeing the escalation. Yeah, they're big dead. Charles and Marie-Andre had already left for their holiday vacation and had given Yannick the keys to their apartment to watch their dog, Frankie. The monkey, Coco, had already died prior to this because she had stolen one of Dominic's glasses of kaopectate that Marie-Andre had prepared for him and then drank it and died. Oh, fuck. Yeah, and Marie-Andre explains it away like, oh, she was just a little monkey and it was for, you know, it's for a grown man, but it's like, it's fiber? Like, it's not going to kill you. It's not going to kill you. Yeah. 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 So Coco's gone. He's watching the dog. But having keys to the apartment meant that he also had a key to the safe, which meant that they could get everything that they needed and get the fuck out of there. Mm. Remy and Nadine were also informed of what Yannick and Dominique had discovered and were told that Dominique had found a bit of rubber hose, which smelled like gasoline the night after the Dutch couple left. The four of them made searches of the Cannot House apartment and found hypodermic needles, a pair of handcuffs, and the suitcases of the Dutch couple. Oh, shit. Like, mm-hmm. they're putting all the pieces together. They're... Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's gotta be so fucking, like, unnerving. Uh, yeah. Can, to be can like, you just I... imagine the chill that we're going to Yeah, spine? seriously. Yeah. 
A further search uncovered the missing passports of some of Remy and Nadine's friends and Stephanie Perry's passport, whom Yannick recognized as the drowned girl who was in the paper the week before. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So they don't really know what to do. The Thai police, they knew, wouldn't care if they weren't paid for their time. And Charles had connections at the French embassy, which they were all of French origin, so that's where they would have needed to go. But since he had connections there, they couldn't go there because he's already... Because he's... Yeah, he's influence. chummed up with them. Yeah. Yeah. But Yannick and Dominique didn't have the money they needed yet in order to just leave. Like, they were still trying to kind of save up and maybe leave by Christmas, which was their plan. And so much time had passed trying to convince themselves in what they believed was true that now Charles and Marie Andre were set to return from their holiday the next day. Oh, fuck. Yeah. No. <laughs> so Remy and Nadine decided to go to the bank first thing the next day, and they would lend Yannick and Dominique the money they needed for tickets to get back to France. And then from there, they could inform the authorities of what they knew and then send money back. Okay. So. Good plan. Yeah. <laughs> and while all of this is happening, the other ex-detective, they're like, Oh, shit, we haven't seen Francois in a while. Like, I hope he's okay. He left with AJ, like, just before mm -hmm. Charles and, or, you know, Alain and Monique left. And then he comes back and they're like, oh, my God, we thought you'd been killed. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> it is so good to see you. Yeah. <laughs> and so they explain everything. And then that guy's like, oh, fuck, I want to get out of here, too. So all three of them go to the airport together to go back to France. And then while they're at the airport, Yannick tells the other two that Charles hadn't gone to Hong Kong like he'd told everybody. He knew that Charles had actually gone to Kathmandu and then had told Yannick to tell everybody that he'd gone to Hong Kong to maintain the rouge that he's got going mm. on. And then he has the key to the safe still on him at the airport. And he oh, no. Throws it in a trash can. Oh, no. <laughs> I know, it's like, you're an ex-detective, what are you thinking? What are you doing, yeah. In Kathmandu, the charred body of a woman was identified by fellow travelers as that of 28-year-old Connie Jo Bronzich of California on Christmas Eve. Days before, she had told some of the people on the same tour bus as her that her Canadian boyfriend, Laurent Carrier, had gone to visit Dulicel and had hadn't returned in two days, so she was going to go find him. Another body, which the friends were brought to the morgue to identify her body, and they were also shown this body. They thought that this body resembled the Canadian boyfriend, but his body was burnt so badly and his throat mm. had been cut so deep that it was nearly impossible to identify him. I mean, he was damn near decapitated and just like really severely burnt. So they were like, he seems like he's the right height, but we just but don't may, know. Yeah, like, and maybe, I mean, also, maybe not. Like, <laughs> and these were just like traveling friends that she had just mm -hmm. met. So it's like they aren't. It's not in, somebody you know deeply. It's not somebody you know deeply. And like, I just don't even know that I could take a good look at a body I think is a friend and make a positive identification. Like, right. you you want it to be a really brief glance, you know? Right. We don't make people do this anymore for a reason. So the group had been in town for a few days, and the friends were able to tell the superintendent Rye of the Kathmandu police station that Connie had talked about meeting a Vietnamese-looking gem dealer who offered to take her to some gem mines, and maybe he would know more about what happened to her. 
in one of Connie's notebooks, they also found the address for Alain Gautier, and they passed it on to Rye. Using the description given to him, Rye tracked down a similar man from the Solti Oberai Hotel, although he was registered under the name Hank Batania. Hank told Rye that he was a sociology professor at the University of Amsterdam, and that he and his wife Cocky wouldn't at all mind coming in for questioning, because they had nothing to hide. The travelers couldn't positively identify Hank as the gem dealer, and to make things more complicated, records showed that Laurent Carrier had flown out of Kathmandu and couldn't hmm. possibly be in the morgue. Hmm, okay. Although the investigation got moving quickly, it did stall for several weeks because of these complications, just as Charles Sobrage would later admit he planned them to. He flew back to Bangkok for a day trip as Laurent, after murdering him, knowing that it would make investigators believe that the Canadian was possibly mm. still alive and responsible for the death of Connie. Smart. And, I don't like it, but smart. Right. Like, Again, he would say he killed them both because they were named as drug smugglers by his Hong Kong connections. Oh my god, again. With it. <laughs> but I think that he did this because I think that he targeted them because Connie did have a prior heroin addiction that she was trying to leave behind in California, but she was using morphine while she was traveling through Asia, so she was susceptible, I guess, to people taking advantage of her, and he did. He yeah. killed her. Superintendent Rye did raid Sobraja's room on December 28th, knowing that the so-called Dutchman and his wife weren't who they claimed to be, but it was empty, aside from some scattered jewels, learned-to-speak Spanish cassettes, and 11 empty tins of chocolate-flavored laxatives. That is a suspiciously large amount of laxatives. <laughs> like, holy shit. Right. The laxatives found in the room in DePaul... I think were Doan's regulets, which appear to have been manufactured and used mostly in the early 20th century in the United States and Europe. And I couldn't find any information on whether the brand continued to be used into the late 20th century, but I know there's a tendency for older medicine to have a longer life in less wealthy countries, either because they can mm. continue to sell products there for cheap or they mm -hmm. can't get the newer, more expensive stuff. Right, so they just get the older things. Right. So the ingredients in the regulets that I was able to find were phenothaline, cascara extract, aloin, potophyllin, and ginger oil. And I would love to actually talk about this whole ingredients list because it is wild, but we only have so much time. So we're going to talk about phenothaline. Our chemist listeners will no doubt recognize phenothaline as a pH indicator used in some of the most important but boring experiments they'll ever have two hours to complete in the lab. <laughs> However, it also had a short life as a laxative because it could stimulate intestinal mucosa and constrict smooth muscles, making it a stimulant laxative. Stimulant laxatives stimulate nerves in the gut that increase motility and also increase fluid accumulation, which is different from absorbing water from the body like an osmotic laxative does. Stimulant laxatives do this by inhibiting the effects of sodium and potassium and the other two types of laxatives are bulk-forming laxatives, which is like psyllium husk, and stool softeners like docusate. And that's like like Metamucil is like mm -hmm. the psyllium husk, right? Mm -hmm. like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Phenylphthalein is no longer used as a laxative because in 1999 the FDA removed it from the generally recognized as safe list for concerns over unknown carcinogenicity. Mm. But it was replaced in modern laxatives like X-lax with the stimulant laxative Senna, which also stimulates nerves and reduces water absorption by increasing messenger neurotransmitters in the guts that control ion secretion and endocrine signals. So that's how these stimulant laxatives work. And I would assume that Charles Sobrage may not have been aware of the type of laxatives, like the four types, but he was probably aware enough to know that he didn't need to give people stool softeners or fiber. He needed to give them something that was more stimulant or osmotic mm-hmm. to really make it seem like you're getting the The shits. urgency, yeah. Yeah. From Nepal... Charles and Marie-Andre traveled with AJ to India, where Charles claims AJ murdered an Israeli tourist in Goa named Alon Aaron Jacobs, who was the only victim Charles ever regretted dying. He Hmm. said that he worked very hard and he shouldn't have been killed, and he kind of puts this murder entirely on AJ. Then they rode with a group of Frenchmen who they drugged and attempted to murder with their own van, but luckily some people living nearby saw the van in an accident-like situation and the men were saved. In Madras, AJ separated from Marie and Charles to visit family, so the couple flew to Singapore and then to Hong Kong on January 31st. There, they met American school teacher David Allen Gore, whom they drugged and robbed of so much money, including checks and credit cards, that Charles was able to buy a gold watch for Marie, a diamond ring for his new Thai girlfriend, Rung, and he was planning to buy himself a Jaguar and a luxury apartment back in Bangkok. Wow, they really, like, went big with this one. They did, yeah. When they returned to Cannet House, far later than had been originally planned for their Christmas vacation, Charles and Marie-Andre returned and asked Remy and Nadine for the whereabouts of their missing French lodgers, but Remy and Nadine told them they didn't know. Charles didn't press, but Remy and Nadine did notice two workers were hired to come to the apartment with a large toolbox, probably to open the safe that was now missing a key. <laughs> Nadine kept away from the apartment during the day while Remy was away at work for her own safety, and she was still trying to get people to help her do something about Charles and Marie-Andre, because she can't really leave the apartment. I think that, like, Remy's work was helping to pay for the apartment, mm-hmm. and there was some deal where, like, because they'd come to Bangkok and he'd found work, now they're kind of stuck there, and mm-hmm. she... She knows that her neighbors aren't safe, but she's also worried that they're going to, like, realize that she knows and make her... So she has to play it cool. Yeah. A French engineer tried to contact the British embassy with information on Alain Gautier, but the diplomats there wanted proof. So Nadine snuck into Charles's apartment and found a notebook belonging to Hank Batania. The British embassy gave it to the Thai police, and the investigation stalled. Dominique had kept his word upon reaching France and had sent back the money lent to him for his plane ticket, along with the message that he'd gone to the French police and was told that they could do nothing about it. What the fuck? It's not a French issue. It's a Thai issue. So they're, yeah, I'm, I mean, I kind of get it. Like, what are they like? Oh, we are going to fly to Thailand and take care of this for it. Like, I mean, I, yeah. Okay. It's, it's hard. It's a hard it's, situation. Yeah, it's it's frustrating, like, but I get it. Yeah. And I only read this in The Serpentine by Thomas Thompson, but he'd also been to the doctor and learned that his blood contained traces of strychnine. Oh, shit. So 
I don't know if that's true. I couldn't find that corroborated anywhere, but who knows? Possibly. Yannick had promised to contact Interpol when he was back home, using his old connections as a detective, but Nadine hadn't heard from him at all, and pretty mm. much wouldn't again. That guy just fucking disappeared. Okay. When he Chris was like, I got out of there. Good riddance. <laughs> yeah, like... yeah, for real. Which is like, <laughs> you were the detective. Why are you not are more you... on top of this? Yeah, why are you the one giving up? When Christmas came and went and the families of Cocky Hemker and Hank Batania did not hear from them, they reached out to the Dutch embassy to help locate their children in Thailand and make sure that they were okay. The last they'd heard of them was at the beginning of December when they'd written about getting a sapphire ring from a gem dealer who they were going to stay with in Bangkok. The matter of locating these Dutch travelers fell to a secretary at the Netherlands embassy, 31-year-old Herman Knippenberg, who would become the unlikely hero in this strange international chronicle. Knippenberg had little to go on to find two Dutch travelers on a multi-country trek through Asia in 1976. He'd been able to determine from immigration files at the Bangkok airport that they definitely entered Thailand, they had unclaimed mail from home at the Bangkok post office, and their passports were close to expiration, which would have required them to come into the embassy for renewal, but they never did. Then, on February 13th, a colleague at the Belgian embassy named Paul Siemens called Knippenberg up, asking him if he had any missing Dutch travelers, because the passports of two had been seen in a Frenchman's safe. Possibly this was the same Frenchman that the Dutch couple had written home about, Alain Gautier, and the name was close to one that the embassy had heard before and was trying to investigate related to antiques or drug smuggling. But I think it was a completely different guy. Like, it's almost a coincidence mm. that they even, like, put these things Looked together. Looked into it, yeah. But Knippenberg had also seen the Bangkok Post article about the burnt Australian bodies wearing clothing from Holland and was concerned that they might have been misidentified and were actually the bodies of Cocky and Hank. Following this phone call from Siemens... Knippenberg followed his hunch and phoned the morgue. As it turned out, the Australians who were thought dead had actually been found alive elsewhere in Asia, so now the identity of the corpses were again in question. Knippenberg contacted the Hague and asked them to send copies of the dental records of Batania and Hemker to the embassy, and then had them compared to the teeth of the dead by a Dutch dentist living in Bangkok, and she confirmed that the bodies were those of the missing Dutch couple. All right, we're getting somewhere. Finally. <laughs> yeah, finally. <laughs> Siemens sent Knippenberg a report on the burnt bodies, which had determined that possible accomplices for the suspect Alain Gautier were Monique Leclerc and a Thai woman named Rung. By speaking to the Australian embassy, he was able to get information from the Lapthorns about their unfortunate drugging and robbery oh, months before. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's all coming together it's, now. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> They're back. Okay. And then again, the name Monique came up as a possible association as well as a dog named Frankie because they weren't as clever as they fucking thought they were. Right. <laughs> so Knippenberg passed all this information on to the Thai Crime Suppression Department, but was essentially told that the case would not be prioritized. No. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So, Knippenberg had technically fulfilled the duties of his position. He is just, like, a junior-level Dutch diplomat at the embassy. He had found the Dutch couple. Their families had closure. He could have been done, but he was not content with that. 
Someone had lit these people on fire while they were still alive, and he could not stand to rest while that person was still free to roam. Like, I think that the show The Serpent really does a good job showing, like, all the effort that Knippenberg put into this, but it's also, like, I think he was a consultant on the show, so of course it shows him in a Mm. good light, but, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have very few issues with, like, how ruthlessly Knippenberg pursues this. (laughs) Yeah, like, well, and it's, like, it's about goddamn time. I know. I know. Like, like, somebody finally is, like, getting it together. Somebody finally cares. Yeah. (laughs) So on March 8th, they finally had enough information to lead them to Cannet House. There, Knippenberg, Siemens, and a French diplomat named De Guverny met with Nadine and Remy to ask them what they knew about their neighbor. And Nadine informed them that she'd given the journal to the British embassy, and so Knippenberg went to them to get the report they'd written up, and then abandoned eight weeks before. Mm-hmm. The report was, like, pretty detailed, despite having been completely abandoned. Like, it shouldn't have been. Nadine did a good job. She talked about the Dutch couple. She talked about AJ, Dominique, Yannick. It was full of dates and addresses. She really did her best to try to get help for her friends and the dead travelers, but nobody until Knippenberg had followed up, and he was pissed about it. He wanted to have the best case possible to give to to the Thai police, though, and he wasn't sure that he still had it, because if the British were going to give up with that report, like, the Thai were not going to care until he basically has, like, a picture of, you know, Charles poisoning somebody. Right. And... He had Nadine get pictures of Charles. <laughs> so he has her get pictures of Charles, Marie-Andre, AJ, and their apartment. All, of course, surreptitiously because, you know, she's already putting herself in danger by getting these pictures. And so she has to be pretty, like, on the down low about it. Mm-hmm. And then when she hands over the pictures, she also gives a map of the apartment, like a little blueprint that she draws out with items of interest labeled. Like, this is where the she, safe like, is. She, like, really yeah. went above and beyond. She really did. She really did. And so, based on all of this, the police agreed to do a raid. But they needed more time to prepare in order to ensure the safety of Remy and Nadine, which I'm really glad that they weren't just like, we're going to go in because if something Guns blazing. Yeah. Right. But they were still running out of time. Charles was not overly concerned about being caught, but he knew that he wasn't as safe as he wanted to be because he was suspecting that there was something up with Nadine. Like, she was keeping her distance, you know, and, like, I think her trying to, like, keep it cool and, like, just be like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm okay with not hanging out. Like, that made Charles feel like something was up. Mm. Also... He was playing both Marie-Andre and his new girlfriend, Rung. He was telling Rung that they were about to get married and he was going to leave Marie-Andre. And he was telling Marie-Andre that he needed to get what he could out of the Thai girl so that he and Marie-Andre could leave for Paris together. (sighs) Yeah. So this latter story is what Marie-Andre was telling Nadine, that they would soon be leaving for Paris together to start their lives. And he wanted her to have his baby, but she didn't know if she wanted to have his baby. And she wasn't sure if she even wanted to still be with him, but she was still going to go with him to Paris. Like, high drama. High drama. And, and she, now, let me clear up real quick. Did, did Marie-Andre, did she know about the murders? 
That's the thing, is that she's later going to say she never saw him kill anybody, but it's like, how could you not know what was happening to some degree? Like, Right, like, that's that's where I'm at. Like, I mean, and she knew about the poisonings. She had to have, yeah. Like, she, she knew about that, at least. Yeah. Like, maybe not the, like, setting people on fucking fire, but, right. like... Right, but she's still like you. You know that you're poisoning and you're stealing from people, and then they're just like going missing. What do you think is happening to them? Right, but I think that she was still able to maintain some level of like plausible deniability throughout all of it. Okay. So, who okay. knows? Okay. Anyhow, but so as soon as Nadine learned that Marie Andre and Charles had plans to leave, she rushed to tell Knippenberg that they needed to act quickly. Like I know that they're pausing to ensure my safety but if you don't do it now you're never gonna catch these people mm -hmm. this was on march 11th so knippenberg called the police and this new information changed everything they would raid the apartment that night and make it look like a narcotics raid so around 4 p.m that evening charles marie andre and aj and then their newest accomplice that they picked up jean de hisme were arrested and taken into custody by the crime suppression unit. Charles had been ready for them, though. He told them that he was the American David Allen Gore. And that was the the guy that was the big score. Yes. Earlier yeah. on, right? Okay. Mm -hmm. And they asked him, like, why did you have so many passports in the apartment? And he was like, oh, they're collateral that I'm holding for incomplete gem deals. These people will be back. And they wanted to look in the safe. But the key hadn't been replaced. And so he's like, ah, oh, you can't look into the safe. And so the police were like, well, we'll just take the whole safe then. And we'll just open it up at the station. But nothing incriminating was found during the course of their raid and questioning. And so all of the suspects were allowed <sighs> to return to Cannot House no. with the promise that they're going to come back to the police station the next morning for more questioning. Okay. I know, right? <laughs> Again, Knippenberg is furious that nobody is really giving this case the level of seriousness that it needs like he knows that this guy has lit people on fire while they were still alive like do not let him go mm -hmm. and he knew that he wasn't david allen gore like obviously he's not right. david allen gore like he doesn't know who he is he he thinks he's this alan, alan gautier person but it's like Obviously, this French Vietnamese man who has stolen identities right. as him M.O. is not a guy from Iowa who was right. living in Puerto Rico. <laughs> like, like, are you seriously The most obvious this? of things, yeah. <laughs> and so he, he was just, like, banging his head against the wall. Like, this is so obvious. This is so obviously not this guy. And I don't know why it's not obvious to you, but you know who it will be obvious to? Hmm. Fucking Americans. They'll know. Mm. So he phones Ralph Nider at the U.S. Embassy and tells him what's happening. And Ralph Nider is just the diplomat over there. Okay. And Nider agrees to investigate whoever this Gore person is. And he also said that he would bring in two DEA officials to question him because there appears to be some drug shit going down as well. And that he would show up in the morning when Gore was supposed to return. And then as they're concluding this phone call where he's like, yeah, 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 if the guy shows up, I'll be there. But hey, do you think there's any connection between this guy and a missing U.S. national, Teresa Knowlton? Oh, let's go. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so, much to my surprise, Charles, Marie-Andre, AJ, and Jean 
all showed up the next day for their next round of questioning. Okay, that is like <laughs> ob- like honestly like one of the biggest shockers of this. Like, <laughs> like <laughs> I mean, it's just their arrogance, I suppose, that they're like, yeah, we'll show up. We got nothing to hide. It's fine. So they showed up. The safe was open. Nothing of interest is found. But the French diplomat de Giverny, he was investigating Stephanie Perry's disappearance as a possible person of interest in this case. And so there Mm. is more and more building up against the group as they're being held in custody. Excellent. Until that evening. Oh. (laughs) When it's theorized, it hasn't been proven, nobody's admitted to anything, but it's theorized that a bribe traded hands and all four suspects (sighs) were allowed to leave. No. Mm -hmm. Because they they were being held by Thai police? They were being held by Thai police. (sighs) Yeah. And I think Anne's dad had been involved with the police, and so Charles, like, had ends with the police, and that's probably where it came from to some degree. Damn. Yeah. And so they fucking get out of there. AJ goes back to Cannot House, and he, like, collects everything that he can so that he can sell anything that's of value. The other three got the bag full of passports from Charles's ex-girlfriend and then flew to Penang. Charles was picked up there for drugging and robbing three Australians, but talked his way out of that. And then from Penang, they flew to Karachi, where Charles knew an Australian nurse named Mary, who they stayed with briefly. And then Charles flew to Europe, while Marie-Andre stayed behind with Mary for 10 days before joining Charles. And I think that this is a really interesting point, because... Marie-Andre had been writing in her own journal that was recovered and been talking to Nadine about how she was torn with her relationship with Charles. She didn't want to have this baby anymore. He was getting her in a world of trouble, and now they're on the run. And she had means now to escape him. Like, she's with Mary. She's not with Charles. She has a way to get to Europe, which is the plan that he has for her. So it's like, if you can get to Europe... You can get to Canada. You can get Mm -hmm. away. You can get out of Mm -hmm. this relationship. And, like, you know, before you could say that she was, like, trapped and she didn't have her passport and her money and that's how she got into this whole thing is that, like, her her visa expired. But it's, like, if you're able to receive a ticket to join him in Europe, you're thousands of miles away and he's calling you back. Why did you join him? Right. Like, I, I have sympathy a little bit. Up until this point, and then any sympathy that I have that it's like, maybe you didn't know, or maybe you were unable to do anything else, it's like, no, I don't think so. I mm-hmm. think that you were entirely complicit in this, because yeah. you went to Europe to join him. Yep. So, where in Europe did they go? Where in the world is Charles Sobrage? <laughs> <laughs> On April 6th, Nadine received a postcard from Switzerland signed from Milan. And she passed this on to Interpol for the Geneva branch to attempt an arrest. But many of the other diplomats weren't taking her seriously and thought she was an accomplice in this no, whole thing. Why? Okay, but why would she be telling on herself? I have no that idea. That doesn't make any fucking sense. But they, even if they weren't taking Nadine seriously, they were taking Knippenberg's report seriously. And they were able to positively identify Teresa Knowlton and then inform her grandmother of her death on April 13th. So her family finally has some closure. On April 27th, Nadine called Knippenberg to tell him that the Cannot House manager was about to sell the rest of Charles's and Marie's belongings left in the apartment as like sort of an eviction sale to make up for the lost rent. 
and then clear the apartment to get ready for tenants. Nadine, Remy, the diplomats, and Herman's wife, Angela, who seems like an amazing person in her own right. Like, she was a polyglot and helped with a lot of the translations of everything that they had because mm. Herman doesn't speak French. He only speaks Dutch and English. And she actually says that she was downplayed in the books, which she got less attention in the books than in the, the show The Serpent. And so I'm really glad that The Serpent, like, really upped her mm -hmm. involvement because she seems very cool. But so... They all head over to the apartment because they're like, we're going to just lose whatever evidence is over there mm -hmm. if we don't step in. Because obviously, like, right. fucking police aren't going to. And so what they found was several of Cocky's things, one of Teresa's books, the copy of Oil Politics that Russell Lapthorne had mm. been reading. Like, all of this kind of seems like serial killer type shit, right? With, right, like, like, like kind of trophy like yeah, stuff. Because yeah. it's, like, kind of, like, innocuous stuff. Yeah. But also, like something of importance to each of the people like mm -hmm. enough of a reminder of them right right and the fact that they were able to identify it like that they could see it was one of Teresa's books because her name was in it that they knew it was russell lapthorne's book like this is why i think that he was just retconning his story and was saying oh i knew their names and it's like you didn't know their fucking names how would you have found these people mm -hmm. in fucking asia like right that's a pretty tall order. And so, like, even Julie Clark was like, you know, how would he have known their names? And it's like, he had Teresa Knowlton's books. He killed her and then looked and was like, oh, that chick's name was Teresa. And then held onto the book so he could mm -hmm. remember it later. But anyhow, they also found Andre Brugnot's travel itinerary. And they found a letter to Vitaly Hakim from Stephanie Perry. They also found 51 different brand name drugs. Most of which were sedatives. Holy shit. It was a fucking pharmacy that they found. Yeah. And the narcotics raid, quote unquote, had not uncovered any of this and hadn't taken any of this. <laughs> like, the police fucking took nothing and investigated nothing, even when they were taking it the most seriously. These drugs were sedatives or barbiturates. They were also drugs to induce diarrhea, nausea. They were hallucinogens. And, for whatever reason, there was 10 kilograms of itching powder just for good measure <laughs> just for good measure like you're shitting yourself you're passing out might as well be itchy while might it's as, all happening yeah, might as well of the greatest interest to the case however was the discovery of marie andre's journal which showed that she was writing about her deep undying love for charles even in the days leading up to the raid however torn she was she was still writing to herself personally that she still right. wanted to be with him hmm on May 6th, the Thai Rath newspaper published an article saying that Goche and his accomplices were arrested in Singapore. These claims were unsubstantiated, and in fact, Charles was still living it up as a gem dealer at Jean de Hisme's home in Paris. But it caused the English-language Bangkok Post to set the record straight, and they reached out to Knippenberg and the other diplomats. This, everyone decided, was what would finally cause the Thai police to issue an international arrest warrant. We're going to put it in the papers, we're going to put it in their face, and they can't ignore it. Well, it's about damn time. I fucking know, right? <laughs> like, how, like, we're in May now at this point? Like, <laughs> Oh, I know. On May 7th and 8th, the story broke with a front page headline reading, Web of Death and showing pictures of five of the victims, including the drowned bodies of Teresa Knowlton and Stephanie Perry. 
and I tried locating a version of this paper to see what the copy said, but it really seems as though the only person in the world who held onto a copy of this paper was Herman Knippenberg. Like, mm. if you go online and you search for this web of death, everyone attributes the picture of the newspaper to his private collection. Mmm. Okay. The article also had a picture of opposing Charles and Marie André identified in the caption as Gauthier and Leclerc. The photo was recognized by a diplomat at the French embassy in Singapore and was forwarded to a high-ranking French policeman who Charles happened to be attempting to do business with in Paris at that exact time. Charles denied the accusations in the paper when they were shown to him, and his claims were somewhat substantiated by the fact that the name Alain Gauthier was not yet on their radar, though it would be soon thereafter. He was able to slip away from the grasp of the police official, but they were not safe to return to Jean de Hisme's address, which was now a known location, and Charles's forwarding address to his mother's home in Marseille was also known. Charles and Marie-André actually had visited Noie around this time, and they'd fought the whole time during the visit over Charles abandoning his brother, who was still imprisoned in Greece at this time, and then losing money gambling even during their visit. Like, he could not get over his own wow. vices. Yeah. So they didn't stay long with her, but now her address is known. More information on previous robberies and druggings was also beginning to come out of the woodwork as police stations from Thailand to Quebec finally began to take notice of Charles and his actions. Finding his mother's address also finally gave them the real name of the man they were seeking. Not David Allen Gore, not Jean Beaumont, and not Alain Gauthier, but Charles Sobrage. Finally. <laughs> International arrest warrant issued by Bangkok Interpol on May 20th was for Alain Gauthier, Marie-André Leclerc, and A.J. Chaudhry for conspiring to murder Theresa Knowlton, Hank Batania, Kaki Hemker, and Vitali Hakim, and instructed that immediately upon identification, Interpol should be contacted and would request extradition anywhere in the world that they were found. Well, this is a big fucking deal. Charles, Marie-André, and Jean fled Paris for Bombay, and there, Charles began making plans to escape to South America, which it seems like he's been prepping to do for a while because they found the Spanish-speaking shape. Right, right, right. Before. Oh, that's right. Yep. Mm -hmm. He met a Frenchman there named Luc Solomon, whom he invited to dinner and drugged. He intended to steal his passport, but it had too many stamps, so he robbed him and left. Hotel maids found Solomon unresponsive on July 2nd, and he was taken to the hospital where he died. And in Bombay, he collected new accomplices. The newest one was a Belgian man named Jean Huygens, who came to India years before to start his life over after the death of his son and the subsequent divorce from his wife in Europe. He was now married to an Indian woman and had two children, and was looking for work as a bit movie actor when he met a gem dealer named Daniel at Dipti's House of Pure Drinks. That would be Charles's old stomping grounds from Oh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. At first, he thought he was just helping Daniel with a bit of gem smuggling, which, sure, whatever, I'll help you with that. And he helped him find a woman without scruples named Barbara... <laughs> <laughs> to help with the gem smuggling. All of this he's totally fine with. 
but soon after he found himself in the middle of a plan to rob several nearby jewelry stores and then drug and rob random tourists who were just trying to get around the city. And this is where he drew the line. He was like, I want out of this, but I haven't been paid for what I've done so far, so I kind of need my money and then I can get out. And at the same time, Marie Andre is also trying to get out of India. And she had managed to save up about $300, so she's not anywhere close to being able to get out. So she and Huygens were at the International Telephone Exchange trying to get through to her parents in Canada to get them to send a lawyer to Delhi for her. And as she was looking for her way out, Huygens found his. Because when her back was turned on the phone, he stole her purse and all of the money she had to her name, as well as the mm. whole group's share of cash, traveler's checks, and passports. And they didn't know it, but they could have guessed that Huygens had also gone to the Canadian embassy with photos of Daniel and saying that he feared for his life because of what he'd already seen this strange gem dealer do. So they were pretty much fucked, which they need to be. Like, mm -hmm. it's taken this it's, long. Right. It's, it's about damn time. Marie felt this way, at least. She felt pretty fucked. She was trapped in India with a horrible man she couldn't rid of herself of, and now he was brutally beating her whenever she complained about their situation and threatening to kill her. Oh, fuck. But Charles wasn't willing to surrender to reason or acknowledge the walls closing in on him. Instead, he doubled down. He decided of course he, was he did. <laughs> he decided he was going to go for his biggest plan yet. He befriended a group of French engineering students and worked his magic on them with his tales of growing up in India and all he knew about the dangers of beggars on the streets and the diseases in the water, all while slipping laxatives into their drinks so that they'd see his insights come to fruition in real time and seek his advice for what to do to resolve their illnesses. Oh, okay. When the group left for Jaipur for a few days, they asked him to come with them, but he declined. But he did give them some capsules to take for protection against the polluted water, most of which were actually harmless, but some of which were laced with laxatives so that a few people would undoubtedly get sick, and the rest of them would think they hadn't because they were taking the pills properly or taking better precautions as they'd mm. been extracted, and then come back and ask him for more insight. So upon their return to Delhi, his plan was to drug all 60 students with similar oh capsules. God. Yep. They were going to be filled with laxatives and crushed up sleeping pills. And then he was going to steal their passports and whatever other valuables they had. He was going to go through his jewelry store heists, you know, to get the rest of the funds that he needed. And then he was going to make his great final escape to South America. <sighs> So on July 5th, the group returned from Delhi and met with Charles before their flight to Bangkok. They asked him for more of his antibacterial pills to prevent against dysentery, and he was only too eager to provide them. They were all going to have a final dinner together at the Vikram Hotel, and he instructed everyone to take one pill before eating and two pills after. And his plan was to cause everyone to feel the effects immediately after dinner so that they would retire to their rooms for the toilet or to sleep, and he could steal the group treasurer's bag full of passports while everyone was dispersing. But bumblers be bumbling, and Charles <laughs> Sobrage is no exception. <laughs> the pills took their effects sooner than he had expected, and the group leader's wife suddenly collapsed at dinner. It was so sudden, it could have been a stroke 
or it could have been the duty-free vodka they were all sharing. They had no idea what it was. But then some of the students began to feel dizzy, and they realized that everyone who was feeling this way had taken one of Charles's pills. He told them it must be a reaction to the quinine they were taking as an anti-malarial, that there was some sort of drug-drug interaction happening. Mm. But they were still suspicious, because their reactions were extreme and profound, and students began collapsing all around the dining room, leaving friends to drag them into the foyer where there was more air and space to lay them down. And it was only when the chaos was in full swing that Charles realized he'd seriously misjudged the dosage of the pills. He told the people who still were awake to induce vomiting in themselves and their peers. And then the hotel manager was getting involved because people are collapsing in the dining right? room. <laughs> yeah, he's like, what the fuck is happening here? And so he attempts to induce vomiting for the group leader's wife who collapsed, but her jaw clamped down on his thumb when he put it in her mouth and she <gasps> nearly bit it off. Oh my god. Yeah. So people are laying on the floor, they're passed out, if they're still awake, they're moaning, they're vomiting, they're shitting their pants. The wait staff is like, is this food poisoning? Are we going to get sued? What the fuck is happening? Right. People are trying to call emergency responders, they're trying to call the French embassy. Nobody is picking up. And Charles could have easily taken this opportunity to escape. He could have been like, I fucked up, I'm getting out of here. Out. Yeah. But no, he wants that bag of passports. He was so focused on finding his opportunity to steal this bag that he missed his window entirely and was essentially detained by the hotel staff and some of the students who were still up and about and hadn't taken the pills. So he couldn't leave. The French embassy is finally contacted. They're showing up. Some of the students were able to get themselves into taxis into the hospital. And so hospital representatives and emergency responders are now returning to the hotel to try to figure out what's going on at ground zero and the superintendent leading the group of police who was called by the hospital and came to investigate this was the superintendent who had been on the force when charles had robbed the ashoka hotel so many years before and escaped uh... by a faking appendicitis <gasps> no. <laughs> yeah, so he was like i've been waiting for you motherfucker oh wow <laughs> And he had been waiting also, because he could have, this was years before, he could have escaped into the world and never been back and just been one of those guys. But this superintendent had learned about three French tourists who had been robbed by an individual matching Charles Sobraz's description at the YMCA recently and was like, excuse me, what? Yeah, I know familiar. this motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd also, of course, learned about the international arrest warrant that was out because everybody knew about it. And he knew that this wasn't just some misguided good Samaritan with a batch of bad antibacterial pills. He knew this was international serial killer Charles Sobrage. And so finally, Sobrage gets placed under arrest. For real this time? For real. Okay. For real, for real, for real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we made it. We made it, ladies and gentlemen. Marie-Andre, Jean de Hisme, Barbara, Mary the Australian... Everybody gets arrested in the following days. It was only at this time, when statements began to get collected, that police learned that Marie Andre hadn't seen A.J. Chowdhury since March, and she wasn't sure if he was even still alive. Oh, that's right. Where the fuck did he go? <laughs> He's just gone. Okay. He's gone. 
And as soon as they were arrested, Mar Mary and Barbara agreed to turn witness for the prosecution. <laughs> so they were like, we fucked up. We don't want anything to do with this. Please give us the best deal you can. Right. And so they weren't allowed to have any contact with Charles or Marie Andre. And they kept to their word as the trial ensued and they turned over their evidence against their co-conspirators. But after doing this, and after these first few steps for the trial, they were found unconscious in their jail cells, having overdosed on sleeping pills and <gasps> insecticides. Oh, fuck. Yeah, yeah. After the poisoning, Mar Mary withdraws her original statement and says that she hadn't seen Charles poison Luke Solomon's curry after all. Oh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So, they were apprehended in 1976. In May of 1982, Charles Sobraj was given a life sentence for the murder of Israeli tourist Alan Jacob, but a year later he was acquitted on appeal for lack of evidence. He was not released from prison, however, as he was still serving 12 years for the attempted robbery of the French students and other crimes. But he was found not guilty for the death of Luke Solomon because Mary took back her original statement. Mm -hmm. In 1985... India agreed to extradite Sobraj to Thailand for the murders of Vitali Hakim and Teresa Knowlton. If found guilty in Thailand, he likely would not have received a sentence of life imprisonment as in India, but would very likely have been sentenced to death. Oh, shit. And he knew this. He escaped from the Tihard jail in New Delhi in March 1986 by giving his prison guard baked goods and fruits that he said were to celebrate his birthday the next month. It's not even his birthday yet. These sweets were laced with chloral hydrates and midazepam. Both of these drugs are central nervous system depressant sedatives, similar to barbiturates. The others have been so, so I'm not going to go too much into them. It's that, right. it's that GABA inhibition again. Mm -hmm. He was found days later in Goa and arrested. The prison break meant he needed to face another trial in India, but there were delays in the trial, of course. And by the time it was all said and done, Sobraj was released from Indian prison in 1997, and by then, the crimes he was meant to stand trial for in Thailand had surpassed the statute of limitations there. Uh, so, damn. Charles Sobraj likely murdered more than 20 people in 10 different countries and yet was allowed to walk as a free man because of legal loopholes that he exploited by making this escape in India. Wow. And this is why he was given the nickname The Serpent. Whenever he was asked, and sometimes even when he wasn't, he always said that he never killed anyone. And even when he edged close to admitting murder, he always justified it by saying his victims were cleaned or liquidated on orders from Hong Kong. Wow. Despite maintaining his innocence as far as killing anyone, he would admit to drugging and robbing people and was constantly trying to sell his story to someone. Eventually, he did get a book deal with Richard Neville and Julie Clark, but he wanted more. He was always trying to get more and sell his story for more money. He wanted people to know who he was. He wanted people to love him, even if it was a love born of fear. One journalist he spoke to in 1984, Alan Dawson, I think got the closest answer when asking Charles why he did what he did. He said, All those white people had corrupted and ruined Asia by trafficking opium, and therefore his reasoning was that today's white people deserve to die for it. <laughs> wow. And like I said, I think that was it. I don't think that he right. was doing anything on orders. I think that he had 
some grudge and like just this disdain for people who did drugs sold drugs like right right and like people you know white people did fuck up asia like that is totally true and like his childhood really bore that out and i could see like how he could come to that conclusion but like you don't need to kill tourists you know like you don't Mm -hmm. need to light fucking people on fire right like like unnecessary roughness yeah (laughs) yeah but so after his release in from india he lived in france until he returned to nepal in 2003 and for whatever reason because he could have just remained in france for the rest of his life without trouble so braj established a shawl export company with a fake identity in Kathmandu. However, he was recognized for who he truly was while gambling at a casino, true to form, Mm -hmm. and was arrested. And at first, they didn't have all the information they needed. They weren't really sure they could hold him for very long. But Hermann Knippenberg stepped in yet again. Yeah. And and he sent the files that he had on Sobraj's time in Nepal in 1975 to the FBI. And then he was officially arrested for the murders of Connie Joe Bronzich and Laurent Carrier. He received a life sentence in Nepal in August of 2004. Okay, so he did finally get, like, some come up. No, don't. Giving, <laughs> I'm seeing a face. Like, she's giving me the face. In 2008, he married his lawyer's daughter while still in jail. On December 23rd, 2022... The now 78-year-old was released from prison after only serving 19 years because of poor health. As a result, Charles Sobraj is once again a free man living out the rest of his days with his young wife in France. What the fuck? (laughs) I'm sorry to be the bearer of poor news. Mm. Although Marie-Andre never directly murdered any of the victims and maintained that she never saw Charles kill anyone, her involvement was not downplayed in court. She remained imprisoned in New Delhi until 1980, when she was released on compassionate grounds so that she could go back home to Quebec to die from ovarian cancer at the age of 38 in 1984. Oh, well, that's kind of tragic. A.J. Chowdhury has not been seen since March of 1976 when he went on a trip to Malaysia with Charles, according to Marie Andre, and did not return. She thought that Charles may have killed him and buried his body in the jungle, but his remains have never been found. There was one unconfirmed sighting of Chowdhury in Germany in 1976 that was unlikely to have actually been him, but the Interpol case against him is still open for his part in the murders. And that is the end. Of the story of the serpent. Wow. What a wild ride. (laughs) I know. I know. There's so many twists and turns to this one. And so many countries. Yeah. This was like, (laughs) like, where in the world is Charles Sobraj? I know. I know. So. Globetrotting. Yes. So with that big journey, we now end the season for the summer. Bum, bum. Bum, bum. And before the summer kicks off, we do have one big announcement that we will continue to inform people about, but we are doing another giveaway! Summer giveaway! So, if you would be so kind, we would love to receive more reviews and rates. It would really help us out to get more people to know who we are, especially as we're heading into the summer and we'll be putting out as many episodes. We don't want people to think we don't exist. So... 
dear listeners. Please give us rates and reviews where you can. That includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And what I'd like you to do is if you just want to rate and you don't want to leave a review, take a screenshot of it and send it to us or tag us. And you don't have to leave a five-star review. We're not asking for five-star. Yeah, honest reviews. Honest Honest reviews. reviews. But take a screenshot of it, post it somewhere, post it on Twitter, post it on Instagram, put it in your stories and tag us. You can email it to us at lethaldosepod at gmail.com or you can just send it to us on social media somewhere. We're on TikTok. We're on Tumblr. And you can do multiple entries. So if you rate us on Apple and you rate us on Spotify, that's two entries. And we will pick a winner at the end of June, and they will get a $50 Visa gift card. So That's five zero. 50 yeah. big ones. Yeah. Not not a small prize, I think. I think it's a pretty good prize. And all you need to do is give us some modest reviews. And Take a little bit of time. Yeah. Take less than a couple minutes. Less than a minute. Yeah, and, you know, maybe also tell your friends about us. If you really like us, tell them about the cool-ass toxicology podcast you listen to. So, yeah, we won't be putting out episodes over the summer. We will return in September with more content, but I need to catch up on my research and get a little bit of sunshine. But that doesn't mean we won't be putting out anything, because we still have Patreon, and we will be doing summer movie nights over on Patreon once a month, and then we'll have follow-up episodes about the poisons covered in the movies. So, that'll be a a lot of time. The summer movie nights are a blast. They really are. They're a lot of fun. Like, we always end up covering way more than I expect, and, like, there's always questions that come up that I'm like, oh, that's such a good question. I wouldn't have thought about that. Because, you know, we watch the movies on Discord with our $5 patrons, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Speaking of our patrons, I want to do a quick shout out to thank the people who are currently monetarily supporting us, and that includes Susan, Catherine, Emma, Bryce, Josh, Crimson Bass, Michelle, Jay, Lula, Izzy, and Key. So thank you all so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And if you just want to support us by giving us listens like you are right now, we really, we can't say how much we appreciate that. It means the world to us. But if you would also give us some rates, that would also be great. And you could also win, uh, you know, $50 to buy whatever you want with. So Pretty big deal. If you would, please, for us, we would really appreciate it. And with that, I guess we will see you all in the fall. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and review us everywhere you get your podcasts. For more Lethal Dose content, you can find us at Lethal Dose Pod on Instagram, Tumblr, and TikTok. For an overdose of content, subscribe on Patreon for exclusive episodes and much more. The show theme is Look Far by our dear wizard friend Fogweaver. More of their music can be found on Bandcamp.com. Lethal Dose is created, researched, produced, and edited by Kayla Woods and Bina Stainetko. Stay safe, and remember, the dose makes the poison. <laughs>